Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable, the only podcast that dares to be both on topic and on location, both physically and virtually. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am a part of Gestalt IT, and each time we bring you a new episode, we include the opinions and viewpoints of some of the luminaries in the IT space. And I'd like to take a moment for those folks to introduce themselves as part of our podcast today so you know a little bit more about who they are before we jump into today's premise, starting with Bruno. Hello, uh, my name is Bruno Wallman. You can find me on Twitter uh, over at uh, Wallman Bruno, and I occasionally blog at brunowallman.com. All right, Scott. Good day, my name is Scott Driver. You can find me on Twitter at VT, as in Vermont, VT Snowboarder 42. And when I'm blogging, you can find me at virtualvt.wordpress.com. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Let's jump into the premise of today's episode. Now, I don't need to tell you that ransomware is becoming a big problem, because if you've read the news, you've probably heard about it. And if you've been paying attention to the ransomware problem, you've probably also noticed that a number of companies in the disaster recovery and business continuity space are suddenly talking about how their solutions can help you if you get hit by ransomware. That's very interesting because I don't recall any of these companies telling me that they were security focused some year ago, maybe. But now all of a sudden that ransomware is hitting left, right, and center, and we're starting to see massive losses in the space, they have a solution that is the silver bullet for everything that we needed before. Can these products really solve the ransomware problem that no one else has been able to crack so far? Well, the premise of today's episode is that data protection software can't solve the ransomware problem. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who are going to be watching this on both sides of the coin who are already fighting and, and readying their arguments for the comments. So I want to jump in and uh, talk to Bruno first. Now, Bruno, you know, as part of the delegate group for Security Field Day uh, over a couple of events, you've really seen a lot of focus not only on security, but networking in a lot of other places. Is there one magical solution that can save us from ransomware aside from, you know, law enforcement managing to arrest all of these ransomware crews? Yeah, I, I don't believe there is. If I'm, if I'm being uh, pedantic about the, uh, about the problem, I think um, these uh, software companies or backup companies can mitigate the problem, but they'll never be able to prevent it. There will always be holes in security. Um, ways to get in, ways to steal data, ways to change your data. So I I believe it's just a mitigation factor, a way to, for you to recover, hopefully in a shorter amount of time than you could have without having software like that. Yeah, I would, I would say that they're very heavily focused on a very specific kind of disaster, but they're still doing the same thing that they've always done before, except now instead of your disk drives going up in a fire or being thrown across a parking lot because of a tornado or an earthquake. Now it's a, a little bit more of a man-made disaster, if you will, um, you know, some software that's causing problems. Uh, now, Scott, you come to us from a, a different background in the networking space. And I was kind of wondering your thoughts on this. Are these disaster recovery companies really selling us the solution to the problem that we are facing ourselves with? Or is this kind of a little bit of snake oil? Well, I don't think there, like Bruno said, there is a solve to this problem. Now, if you want to take them at face value, 
what are they really doing? As you said, they're backup companies. So what it speaks to is recovering after the fact. It doesn't speak to prevention, detection, threat response, anything of that nature. So no, they're, they're, they're keying into a hot market, but it doesn't solve anything. And to that point, Scott, you, you make a, a very excellent point. This is something that we've seen time and time and time again from companies that are involved in the enterprise IT space. We sell a thing and whatever the current problem is, that's a solution for your thing. You just don't know it yet. So a firewall is a solution to all of the security and storage problems that we have somehow. And a backup recovery system is the solution to all of the security and wireless problems that we have somehow. The importance is explaining how that somehow happens. And on the surface, I totally understand what they're saying. If you've been infected by ransomware to the point where you are going to face downtime, whether it's your systems going offline or being unable to take new business. Um, we saw this with the Siemens WannaCry attack when shipping, uh, when shipping is affected in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean because the boats don't know which way to go. Like that is definitely a drop everything and fix this problem. And that's when you want to examine the possibility of say restoring from a known good backup. But herein lies that problem. Much like we see in things like the medical field, where you're, you have an infection of some kind and we get you better, but we don't actually treat the source of the infection, whether it's a wound or something like that, we're going to be reinfected. That's just the way that it works. And, and Scott, as you mentioned to your point, this is very much a defensive after the fact solution. You got hit, now you need to recover from backup, but does it fix the entry point? Does it fix the capability of the people to get into your network? Do you see this as being kind of a, a point piece of a larger grouping of solutions? Oh, absolutely. It has to be part of the protection uh, suite, if you will, because it needs to be a whole suite of tools. It can't just be one. But even before we get to that, that entry vector, I'd like to rewind just a step. Um, if, if we take these vendors at face value, um, it does solve the ransomware problem. Well. Let's, let's dig into the mechanics of that. What are, you, are you going to be continuously backing up all of your things all the time? You know, where, where are the bottlenecks that come in there? You're not. You have to make business choices, and some of that is going to be choosing what's your important data, what's the data that you're willing to lose, and for how long. It's the same sort of questions that you look at when you're uh, choosing a, a data protection platform. What are my RTOs? What are my RPOs? And Unless you're driving those basically to zero, it can't solve the problem. Now, going back to the vector, yeah, uh, uh, the, the, the attack vector, this needs to be part of the suite. You need to have a lot of your normal uh, security mechanisms in place. But one thing we like to play in my org um, is where do you want to spend your last dollar? You have one dollar left to spend it. And in this case, you know, uh, data protection versus educating employees, because that's often the vector is that that stuff comes in is via your staff. I'm going to choose the last dollar to spend on educating my staff. And I, I think we're going to have a lot more bang for the buck there than spending a dollar on something that proposes to solve an unsolvable problem. And I think that it's important that the analogy that you said about where do you spend that last dollar is important because when you spend it on education and hopefully to future prevention, you are literally investing in something that can pay off direct benefits. 
and that is a problem that a lot of CIOs and CEOs have when it comes to solutions that involve capital outlay. I am going to spend X dollars out of my budget for this thing. I want to know that it's working. I want to be able to go down to the server room and pat it and say it's it's here and I, I physically can touch it. And they don't really like the idea of saying, well, why am I going to spend you know $1,000 to put on this class for my users to not click on spam links? Can't they just not click on spam links? But that in and of itself belies the problem that there's no solution that can fix the problem ahead of time. We can keep them out. We can recover after they broke something. We can even detect them while they're in the middle of doing the nasty work that they're doing. But no solution is going to proactively go out there and stop these people from infecting you in the first place. Like you said, that is the job of the users. And so I guess then it comes down to how much money should I be spending on these solutions versus the training that would allow my users to identify when they're about to be targeted. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with uh, many of those points. Um, I feel that uh, security and protecting your data and protecting its availability and integrity and confidentiality is a constant cat and mouse game. And, and I don't think you can let your foot off the gas on any of these. It's going to take uh, user education, continued user education, um, and for new users, existing users, um, refreshing classes and things like that. But I think it, it'll also require um, educating software developers to try and get rid of, uh, you know, holes in code that they write, uh, which will never get down to zero for that, which is why it's still always a moving target. Um, you know, uh, firewalls can help their data backups can help their micro segmentation adds another layer of protection there. So I don't think you can pinpoint any one product or suite of products that uh, can mitigate the problem. It's uh, constant focus on all of them, how you decide how much money to spend on each one and where to spend spend that is, I think that's going to be debated forever. I guess another question that I have kind of to a point that Scott made was about what you're getting back, because every company that I've ever worked for had very clear policies about what data is backed up. Those servers are backed up. Those databases are backed up. Your laptop, well, that's on you but you need to save all of your documents in OneDrive or Dropbox or somewhere where they can be accessible everywhere in case something goes wrong. But effectively what these companies are trying to say is we'll just back everything up. And then if anything goes wrong, like, you know, if Bruno's workstation gets taken out by ransomware, we can restore it back to the way that it was before. But that doesn't really jive. I mean, I, I know what it costs to store data in Amazon or in some kind of cloud archive or on a sand somewhere. And that doesn't get any cheaper. In fact, when you're backing everybody's equipment up, it's just going to get worse because now you have all of these data archives that are sitting out there that are not going to be, you know, they're, they're effectively taking up space. You know, even the best backup solution is basically a cost center until you need it. And then when you need it, there's no amount of money that you will be willing to pay, or there's no amount of money you won't be willing to pay to get all that data back. But does that is that going to work well with the companies 
you know, stated objectives of, okay, we're just going to back everybody's stuff up and we're going to set up new policies so that you can't store critical information on personal devices. And we're just going to keep storing all of the stuff infinitely, or, you know, maybe wipe it out once a year or something like that and start with good backups, hoping that if the day ever comes that we'll have what we need to put everything back together with a reasonable RPO of, you know, a few days instead of a few weeks. Well, you hit on a key point there for me, Tom, when you were talking about the costs. Um, it, let's let's assume this works. This backs up everything. We're backing up Bruno's desktop. Um, there's a cost associated with that, and not every org can uh, afford to to spend what might be required on your data protection. So then, what's going to happen then? Well, the big boys, you know, they can. They can afford the big toys. Uh, I work in a org that's on the S side of SMB. We can't go out and get you know all the toys that a, that a large multinational can get. So what does that do? That that it 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 there's a lack of democratization, for lack of a better word, of of who can access this tool. And why I bring this up is the bad guys are smart. They're going to see. Oh well. Um, big multinational bank has all the protections in place. They've solved ransomware. Let's start targeting these mid-size and small-size organizations that may not have the solution. And we're going we're gonna to start attacking them. Further, um, you know, they are smart. Uh, I would say that this model that, that the vendors might be pitching of solving ransomware, it's looking at the traditional uh, encrypt decrypt but we've seen the tactics changing over the last year or two where now stuff is not even necessarily being encrypted there's value to data there's value to stolen data there's value to holding it hostage over your head that i'm going to release out to the public so in in that case if somebody's been leaking your data a data protection solution isn't going to do anything for you let me push back on one point you made there, though, is you say that <clears throat> the big companies, the big boys have the biggest toys. And we know that because we've seen hundreds of solutions that are point specific in nature that are not targeted to SMB, SME, or even middle level. These are targeted to the companies that are like, you know, Fortune 500. And it's solving one little issue that they have, whether it's identity management or perimeter, perimeter firewall or zero trust or... I mean, just pick a category from any of the RSA awards, and there's at least 10 companies that are doing all of that stuff, and they don't get out of bed for deals that are less than a 1,000 seats. They don't cater to that small market. But the flip side of that problem is you are going after companies who don't have good defenses, so that's either lazy companies in the Fortune 500 or the smaller companies who can't afford it, but you're not going to get you know, life-changing FU money ransoms out of these people, you're going to get what, $200 worth of Bitcoin at best. And in a small organization, 200 unexpected dollars out of the cash flow could cause operational issues for that company. They're less likely to pay, especially now that we've seen this shift in tactics where we'll encrypt all your stuff. Well, I'm not going to pay. We'll just rebuild everything from scratch. Well, now I'm not going to encrypt it. I'm just going to release it to the, the Internet unless you pay. And now you've got law enforcement agencies who are like, just don't pay them. 
please, please do whatever it takes. Don't pay them or hire a negotiator and negotiate it down to like 50 bucks. And, and we've even seen a shift there in the last couple of weeks as we record this, where uh, some of the ransomware operators are like, yeah, don't bring in an outside negotiator because we'll, we'll just release your data because well, the negotiator has a point. If we, if you just keep holding on to this data, you'll get a hundred percent of nothing as opposed to, you know, 20% of something. But is this shift in tactics to attacking smaller, more vulnerable organizations effectively just kind of opening the floodgates of we're not going to pay and make you waste resources because we can't pay. If we could have paid, we would have bought a solution that would have stopped you from coming in in the first place. It's an interesting question. And and you, you raise a really valid point there. Um, I think there's a large spread even within that small and mid-sized space. Um, and and kind of to your point about they're lazy or incompetent. That's why we're talking about, you know, your data protection needs to be part of your, your security portfolio. It doesn't need to be the portfolio. So ideally, you'd hope that these smaller organizations aren't relying on just the, the biggest toy, but they have a bunch of other toys at their disposal. Will that prevent uh, or, or will that cause a new wave of small and mid-sized folks not paying? I guess we'll see. One point I want to bring up too is we were talking about uh, backing up data or negotiating, um, you know, a drop in price so you can get your data back or decrypted. Uh, is it even worth it at that point? Can you trust the data anymore? A big part of security, a big part of data protection is its integrity. Can you trust the integrity of that data after you've paid the ransom? And even if you never get hacked. Um, can you can you totally trust the integrity of the data that you're backing up to, say a cloud service or anything like that? How do, how do you know you haven't, you know, that integrity hasn't changed at all and your next restore is just going to put the same bad, bad data back? But Bruno, that's perfect because there actually was an episode of Stargate Atlantis where one of the battle cruisers kept getting infected by a virus because it was hiding itself in a computer on board and every time they'd wipe the system, it just kept reinfecting itself. And that's absolutely the point. We can roll the data back to a point when we know we weren't infected, but how are we sure that the point we rolled back to wasn't a point where we had been attacked? I mean, when you look at the details behind the solar winds attack, and let's be fair, we're gonna be talking about this thing for the next five years. They had penetrated the network and put down their tools to do the work months in advance. So if SolarWinds decided one day to just say, you know what? We're going to wipe everything out back to this known good version. You you may roll everything back, but the back door's still there. If that back door w suddenly wakes up again and checks in with the CNC server uh, for this crew, and they're like, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they wiped out all the hard work we did and left the door wide open for us to walk back in. Are you really even doing anything? Because it creates that false sense of security. Oh, well, we'll just wipe it all out and roll back. And now the, the crew's going to roll back in harder and faster this time because they know what the state of the network looked like when they started this whole thing. So now we're going to encrypt the files twice as hard, ask for twice as much money, and put a note in there that says, if you roll back, we're just going to release your data anyway. Well, yeah, I guess that, that's the exact point I was trying to make. I uh, wasn't expecting a reference to uh, Stargate Atlantis, but uh, <laughs> kudos to you, Tom, for that. But that's that's exactly uh, what we're talking about here. Can you trust anything that you've gotten back from, uh, you know, from from your attacker?
Yeah, I think that ultimately what you're going to find is that a lot of the things that you're dealing with, you really have to do a lot of investigation. You know, maybe it's not that I want my data back. I just don't want you to have it. And I have to trust that you're going to delete all the copies of it that you kept. And maybe I have to change my backup policy. And as Scott brought up, and this is a, an even hairier point that I don't even know that we have time to get into. Um, if your, B, your disaster recovery business continuity team now has to interface with the security team. I mean, I've lived the world where networking and security don't get along with each other because this is my playground and this is your playground and we don't play together ever for any reason unless we absolutely have to. Is that because the networking team is the old stodgy uh, gray bearded folks that don't want to deal with anybody else playing in their playground? Or is it that the security team tends to kind of intrude and take over everything that they do because all they have to do is flash their magical security team badge and go, well, this is a security issue now and we have you know jurisdiction over it or whatever. I'm not saying that either one of those things happens frequently or doesn't happen infrequently. I'm just saying that there's that animosity that gets created when teams have to work cross-functionally. So let's say that your disaster recovery business continuity solution has been doing good backups and we check them and, the, and that team is, you know, we're, we're good. And then suddenly the security team busts in and go, we've had an incident, we need to restore everything right now. And you're like, but but no, the data is, we there's no downtime. We've got to do it right now. Or we're going to get violated in the worst way and we're going to end up on the news. What happens when that team goes, no, you've got to bring me more proof. What happens when you're, you're at loggerheads internally because you've got the security team fighting against the team that has the tool and neither one of them want to give ground? I mean, is there a proper solution for this? Yeah, I think we know every, uh, you know, every CEO and every CIO's worst nightmare is ending up on the news. I don't, I don't think that's a difficult conversation for the security department to escalate to their CIO and and force that to happen. But that, that uh, I don't know if animosity is the right word for it. Like you said, and I mean, I've lived in that environment, currently living in it right now, where uh, security and network they have very different priorities. One is uptime. Network is responsible for uptime. Servers are responsible for uptime. Uh, security personnel are responsible for, um, you know, the CIA triad when it comes to data, confidentiality, integrity, and accessibility. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's a point where maybe they're focusing too much on confidentiality and not enough on integrity or availability, but they, you know, they kind of go hand in hand and there's, there needs to be a balance there and, and a better working relationship between the, the teams that are responsible for uptime and the teams that are, think they're responsible for keeping their organization out of the news. I, I can't agree more. Uh, like you were alluding to Tom, that, that security badge, it's like an all access pass at a concert. It gets you in and out anywhere because as Bruno said, nobody wants to be in the news. And, and this is where the C-suite um, is kind of hanging their hat on, on the risk mitigation. So in that case, you know, yeah, the backup team may go, we need more data. And that again speaks to, you know, what do you have in place to detect and respond? How far do you go back to? But ultimately, the security team's going to win there. So I think we've pretty much determined that the premise of the episode is pretty spot on, that, that disaster recovery and, and data protection systems are not going to be the ultimate solution for your ransomware problem. But I want to pose the question to our panelists, because we don't want to leave this without having some, some kind of an idea of how to fix that problem. 
let's say that you have a you already have a disaster recovery solution that you've invested in and that that they say if something were to happen with ransomware it will protect you because you'll just be able to roll back to your backups and everything will be great what's the one thing one thing that you think that that company needs to add to that solution and it can be anything from across security or organizational change or whatever what's the one thing that they need to augment that to reduce rpo rto and the likelihood that they're going to get infected or reinfected i think a lot of things come a lot of things come down to cost um, so you're talking about uh, where is this data stored what are the costs to store that data in a saas service if that's what it is what are the you know the costs uh, egress charges to get that data back if uh, you know, there's always a balance between between cost and, and uptime and things like that. I, I think they, they need to make it uh, cost effective. I'd agree completely. You have to know your business. You have to know your data. Um, there's a real cost to this data. And um, if something you can afford to lose um, doesn't need to have as high a level protection as, as your tier zero application. So no know your data and apply that smarts to how you protect it. Yeah, I would say that um, as morbid as it sounds, you need to have effectively a triage table of this is how much data we can lose from these locations and be able to run the business. And this is the point where we hit where we have to recover, whether it's disaster recovery or we pay. And you need to know the dollar amounts and the timelines because time is money, data is worth a lot whether it's encrypted or not, whether it's being shared or not. And if you don't have a good breakdown of that in your organization, then you're going to spend a lot of time crunching numbers when you should be doing a little bit more crunching of the people who got into your systems in the first place. So the premise of this episode pretty much stands that there is no one point solution, whether it's data protection or endpoint protection or zero trust that solves all of these problems because the people who you're working against are constantly changing their tactics. They're looking for the soft spots inside of your organization. And if you patch one, they're gonna find another. So you need to have a multi-layered in-depth approach and we can't say it enough. You have to do defense in depth. You have to be able to understand that there are parts and pieces that are gonna need to be protected differently. Does that mean that you shouldn't have a data protection system in mind? Absolutely not. You need to have some form of it. Just don't think that it's going to be the only thing that's going to save you because there's policy and procedure that needs to be on top of it. There's intelligence and logic that needs to be built into it, not only you, but the operators to know we're going to roll back, but we need to make sure that we're rolling back to a state that is not only good, but infection free, even if we don't see the infection. And that's going to require a lot of meetings between your teams. It's going to require a lot of paperwork. And it's going to require you guys to stick to that paperwork because the first time that you go all cowboy on it and try to do this thing yourself by some cool thing you saw on Google, that's when they're going to get you. And well, then you're going to make the news. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of the On-Premise IT Roundtable. Uh, the latest episode of our podcast can always be found on our website at gestaltit.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to us in your podcast application of choice. Um, if you would like to do that on Apple Podcasts or maybe in iTunes, uh, please leave us a rating and a review. People really do read those things to determine if the 
attacking of a premise on IT enterprise networking or storage or disaster recovery is something that they want to listen to. We hope that it is, and we hope that you enjoyed listening to it as well. So for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for our great panelists, and for the rest of our team, we hope that you'll tune in to the next episode of this podcast. And if security topics are something that is more interesting to you in general, please make sure that you check out Gestalt IT and Tech Field Day's Security Field Day event happening October 20th through the 22nd, 2021. You can find more details about that event at techfieldday.com. But for now, we're going to go ahead and sign off, and we will see you in the next episode with another great premise.